0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 15.
1: Welcome 15. back. Yeah, Ooh, we're,
0: we're kind of plugging along there. We this are. This is fun. And today, in this podcast, we're going to talk about our sermon preparation process. How do we go from nothing to a product that we could feel comfortable standing up and giving to a church or to a camp or at a Sunday school lesson or something like that. So that's what we're going to talk about in the main part of the podcast. But before we do, as always, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Let's talk about some books. What do we got, guys?
2: I'm still working through Undeniable, and I don't know if I'll keep going on this. This might be.
0: Undeniable. The, Who's that by?
2: Uh, Doug Axe. We talked about it last time. Just a quick reminder. So, Doug Axe was an intelligent design guy who worked at Cambridge University. So, he wanted to study proteins and how they fold because a protein. By the way, I teach apologetics, and so I, I read these things. I'm not sure everything in this book is wonderful, but this one little bit here is great. He wanted to study how proteins fold because proteins in a cell should not be able to accidentally fold and work the way God designed them if evolution is, there's no design behind it. It's it's accidentally statistically impossible. We talked about the agenda in the book last, or the agenda of science in the the last one. The thing I want to share this time, I think this might be the last thing I go from this book, but he has a principle he calls common science. It is so cool. So if you ever heard the term common sense, it's like we all have this common sense. You don't have to be an expert. He has something he calls common science. And so what he's addressing here is that you have experts who have this extra level of knowledge that you don't have. And so when they say something, you think, well, they're an expert. I don't know science. They know science. I'm not a scientist. And he says, that's not true. Everybody has an understanding of science in this sense. So he says, imagine you take SpaghettiOs and pour them out in a bowl, and it spells a giant sentence like open the cupboard, there is Cheerios in there, or something, you open it, and it's true. What would you think? You'd never, ever think that was an accident. Why would you not think that's an accident? Because it's statistically improbable. That's, <clears throat> that's true. Part of it is that it's statistically improbable, but part of it is that you have observational evidence to disprove it. Everything that happens in your life that has any, any like, like that sort of thing to it is always a thinking person doing it. So example, your bed, you don't make your bed in the morning. You come home, your bed's made. What do you think?
0: I make my bed sometimes.
2: Well, I made you... my bed today. Ooh. I did. Hey, there was that one college uh, graduation speech about making your bed every day. Good mm-hmm. job, Charlie. I know. Two points, man. Yes. Now, let's say you didn't make your bed.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of that. And times you I come helped.
2: home and it's made. Did the bed magically do that itself? No. No, exactly. You know that. And that's actually doing science, he says. So, what he's trying to do is get people who are not scientists to understand. Just because a scientist says something doesn't mean it's actually true. And you don't have to think that you can't know something just because you're not a scientist, because we all understand how observations and conclusions work. So I thought common science, I thought that was a pretty helpful little nugget.
0: I am working through that hideous strength.
2: Oh, yes. I
0: love and that. Into chapter three. You can tell he's, I mean, it's a much longer book. Mm-hmm. This is the Lewis's space trilogy, it's the third book. I mean, it's it's three times longer than the first, at least.
2: Which is why it's three times the best of all. <laughs> so he's he's
0: taking a lot longer in this one to develop what's happening. And it's just a little slow at the beginning. You had to go a long time before there was any reference to a previous book. Yes. I think it's like in the middle of chapter two where you get uh, Weston mentioned. Yep, yep. And you're like, huh, oh. huh. So I don't really have any conclusions on that yet, but you can you can easily see the abolition of man yes. seeping through. And for someone who's never read through it, and you know, I wouldn't even consider myself above average knowledge of... I mean, I've, I understand chapter one of abolition of man. I think I understand the principles there pretty good. But as he goes into chapter two and chapter three in abolition of man, I get lost, easily lost. And I know I, I it deserves a very slow careful attention to read through it. And I've done it multiple times. There was a moment and I can't remember if it was in chapter two or uh, I think Mark is the one character having this discussion with this, this he's potentially getting this new job and he's having this discussion with steel and these other guys. And there's some comments that are being made and I stopped and I was like, that is straight out of abolition of yep. man. So that's all I've got so far. Uh, it, it hasn't, so we, we've talked previously about the entertainment value of a book. And admittedly, this, I went to the, the first book out of The Silent Planet. Hugely, largely entertaining to me. Book two, maybe like drops down about 50%. So far, I'm at like a 3% on this one. Oh. So low entertainment value right now. But you can tell that Lewis is setting himself up to make some profound thoughts through, his, through the text, through the book. so
1: I didn't find really any of them very entertaining from a story perspective. I don't know about you, Sterns, but they just, they just didn't register with me as far as entertainment was concerned. The thinking aspect of it was what I found really appealing, and I found that the most appealing in the second one. And the third one, I personally thought it was very verbose. Like he could have had a better editor clean it up a little bit, but anyway...
0: I, I had a pastor recently tell me, and if that pastor listens to this, he will know who I'm talking about. He says very definitively that this is like one of Lewis's most far out books. Uh, and he says it in a very specific way. And not that I would say that Lewis would ever partake of such things, but he said he must have been smoking something very unique oh, no, before no, no, he no. wrote that he is strength. <laughs> so, so And I'm not trying to defend it. Which him. is fantastic.
2: Like, I would just say that it's the first time I went through it, It was it was almost exactly what you experienced. The first part is very slow. Third read. Now, this is over like a five-year period, your five year period. The third time I read through it, like every chapter was gripping. So if you read it and then read it again and then read it again, I'd like to hear what your, th- your thought is on your third way through it, if you no. ever do. When, okay. <laughs> I've read it d- once. Okay, and we're and in I... episode
0: 15. <laughs> Someday, in like the episode two to 300 range, I will reach my third read through and we will have a special podcast titled... Andy's discussion with Charlie after he's read that hideous strength for the third time.
1: And I will buy you a bag of coffee.
0: Oh, okay. So I've
1: been studying archaeology. (laughs) Let's move on here. Um, What I've got here is the Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology by Randall Price and Wayne House. Uh, As far as archaeology books are concerned, and this is probably the one I recommend the most. It's written by a couple of conservative scholars who have, uh, Randall Price has gone on several archaeological digs. He deals with method and the purpose and reason of our, for archaeology in the beginning, and then he goes through uh, the biblical corpus, Genesis, Exodus, and he just applies archaeology to content in each book of the Bible. So I really like the book. It was, uh, I haven't read the whole thing. I read the opening chapter, and then I kind of saw how he was laying out the rest of the book, and then that, I was done. Excellent reference book that uh, I can refer to in the future.
0: Okay. Tim and Andy have very little threshold of what I want to walk through here. That's by design. I want to have an off-the-hip conversation, something that we all do. And obviously, we work at a Bible college where a lot of students come to train for ministry. There are a lot of future pastors, pastors' wives, missionaries, etc. Many of our students get involved in the lives of young children in a wana or Sunday School. And we'll have the opportunity to be in settings where they are teaching through A text whether maybe they're not preaching but something that the three of us do often is we're in opportunities venues where we're teaching through or preaching a text of scripture so scenario here we have been given a text you don't have to think through what you're trying to preach i think sometimes that's the biggest hurdle for me is arriving at what are the boundaries okay if i'm going to preach a series and the series is five messages it takes me a while to be like okay what is the text for one, two, three, four, five? 2, Figuring out the parameters of it. Take that out of it. That's not what we're discussing. Now, how do you find a text to preach? You've already got that or your topic decided. You know, okay, here's the passage I'm looking at. Passage A or passage B. What do you then do? What's your process look like? Are you going and reading through a passage a certain amount of times? Are you going to diagram it? Are you going to try and do like some specific word studies? I mean, just trying to throw some things out. And this will not be concrete in a, in a very specific sense, but maybe say, what's something that you usually start with? Maybe let's go there.
1: So it just, it depends on how familiar I am already with the text. If it's a passage I really just don't know anything about. I remember the first time I was working through the Song of Songs and I was like, I don't know anything about this. I just read through it in English again and again, switched books of the switched translations, and I knew I was going to translate through it, um but I just wanted to get a little bit familiar with the overall content of the book, so I just read it several times in English. Then I translated through the passage that was the next step for me I think so that's,
0: translating from Hebrew into English
1: yes, so translate the the entire text and not necessarily writing it down, but just when you're translating, you're, you're going slower and you're observing things um, that you wouldn't have ever seen. Again, it was just a familiarity kind of thing, becoming familiar with the passage. That would be maybe like the next step would be to translate through the passage. But again, it just depends on how familiar I am already with the passage. If I'm already familiar with Genesis 1, it's going to go straight to the Hebrew, translate through it, and then I just start noting. For me, I noticed the Vav consecutives the disjunctive structures you know these are tools that we teach and why we encourage are young men to learn hebrew
0: those are those is that greek you're talking about over there <laughs> i don't remember any of those in my i'm working through Colossians, i don't remember any <laughs> disjunctive vavs in colossians
1: <laughs> yep that's right those are those disjunctive vavs in colossians all right there
2: was a vav in colossians it def- would be disjunctive we <laughs> def- say that there are none <laughs> there are none
1: so that just gives you uh to to see like the narrative main line and then what is the author highlighting what is he focusing on so then as i see what the author's focusing on i try to Discern then how that might incorporate into a passage, but really I'm just going to be putting together that exegetical outline and getting familiar with the text first.
2: Yeah, I would say that the mistake that I made for years was not reading the passage enough to start. I would jump right to the commentaries, I'd look to word studies, and I think that's a classic mistake you make, especially when you've had like any Bible college or seminary training. You know all about the tools, you know all about the other things you hear what preachers point to as they preach through a text. And so then when you dive in, you think you kind of gravitate toward those things first. And so one thing, one technique, or I don't know what you want to call it, that I've really worked to increase is to give a good thorough reading. And you know, sometimes it's only two or three times and I'm taking notes and making observations. Other times it, like you said, Tim, it's, I might go through it in four to five English translations. I might then read a background commentary, that sort of thing. But really trying to make sure that I'm seeing the text and getting I try to get as many questions as I can out of the text. So if I see something, why does it say that? I don't try to answer it. I just want to bring up the questions. who are the I'm asking the the six key questions who what, when where why, how, of everything in the passage, I'm looking for the important connector words, but if for, when, so that, because of, and I'm really, it's just a lot of scribbling and noting and that sort of thing. And I would agree with Tim, if it's a familiar passage that goes, that goes faster at times, especially if it's something that I've been, I've had to work through either translating the Greek or I've just preached it before or studied it a lot. So I would say I start with a good thorough reading. And oddly enough, that's something I think a lot of us forget. If you think of inductive Bible study, the first step is observation, then interpretation, application, and I say this in class all the time most people want to jump right to interpreting it. What does it mean? And then, if I said, What's the forgotten step? most people would say, Oh, it's application because, you know, preacher preaches and he doesn't apply it or something like that. I don't think that's correct. I think the most forgotten step is observation because you're familiar with those words in your native thinking language and you think you understand them, but you actually don't. You need to stop and ask more questions. I think like a thorough reading and asking as many, finding as many questions as I can, so that then when I go to a commentary or go to translation, then I'm seeing those. The goal, and the first step, is just to get, get the passage. Yeah, get the passage. That's a good way to say it, Tim. You just want to internalize it. You want to get really comfortable with it. There are many times I've gone to preach, and in the middle, like right at the beginning of the sermon, I realize, uh oh, (sighs) I did not get the passage as much as I should have.
0: Yeah, I would do pretty much exactly what you guys do. I don't use the languages as much as I should and some of the richest preaching I've ever had are from books and texts where I've been forced to translate Ecclesiastes, Jonah, Daniel in Aramaic, Colossians from one of my Greek exegesis courses. Like getting when you can get down to the nitty gritty and really walk through, okay, Here's what's in the original. Now, you're not always going to be able to do that. Sometimes the, the time just does not allow you to diagram every passage. But that's usually where I would start is just becoming familiar with what's there.
2: When you were in Bible college, you did a lot of pulpit supply, if I remember right. A lot from, of
0: pulpit supply. Yep.
2: Like two plus years. I mean, I remember you were from, going out a lot.
0: I would say from maybe like September or October of my sophomore year. Through my junior year, I, mean, I, I have a planner. It was, it was, f-
2: I remember that. Yeah, you were. F- if
0: there was five, if okay. I would average four a month. So, like, okay. generally full time. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but yes, a lot of preaching. And then
2: when you were, you were an assistant pastor for how many years? Three. Three. Did you preach regularly during that time, or was it just it like was intermittently? Not or?
0: exactly, but about a 50 50 split.
2: Okay. So you got, you probably got like a three to four to Five plus years preaching experience. So yeah. you've had to, you've gone through these steps a lot yourself.
0: And and I can definitively remember, as a junior, I moved Greek up in my program, which I'm thankful for because that means I was in Professor Andy stern's first ever Greek course.
2: I'm wiping tears from my eyes. Tears of pain and suffering. Joy and sentiment. Are you kidding? But,
0: so I'm actually not. I'm actually not <laughs> going to talk about you. I'm actually going to talk about the next year. Since I took that when I was a sophomore, Greek grammar, I was in. My junior year was the heart of the pulpit supply. I was with Dr. Doug. And I can remember going through those exegetical worksheets. And students, if you never get to this point, you start going through the book of Ephesians. And the rule is for these exegetical worksheets, you can either finish the worksheet or if you get to six hours and you're not done, you can stop. And you might hear that and you're like, six hours? And it was like, (laughs) yes. Like, it's going to take a lot of time because you're, what Tim, what did you say? You're going to go slowly through the text and ask questions of it, you're observing in the languages, and that just takes time. But I can remember thinking, wow, like, I have accounted for every word that's in this passage, and I know what that word is doing, I know how it's fitting into phrases, and as you build those blocks together, you're like, man, I really know what this paragraph means, like, I know what he's doing here.
1: Yeah, I just remember that uh, Charlie's here talking about an epistle. Yeah, we don't do that in narrative in the old testament but anyway you can continue
0: not necessarily a lack of time and thinking but it's just the syntax is much different Very right different. so okay let's move on so we we kind of talked through our interaction with the languages our reading okay one more thought. can i just add
2: one more yeah. i would say that i don't think you need to know and i'm the greek teacher i would say that as a believer especially in ministry you don't have to know greek i don't think you, god gave us an english bible you can learn good observational interpretive skills but if you can learn the languages, that's just going to make it that much more clear. And one of the really great things about the languages, and this goes off the six-hour worksheet, I had someone mention this to me, and I can't remember where I got this. One of the best reasons to learn the languages is it helps you to slow down and read your Bible more carefully. And when you hear it day in and day out your whole life in church, if that's but your background, it's just going to make you a better communicator because what, what you just described happens Paul, he wrote, what, 2,000 years ago, totally different culture, totally different time period. And so that forces you to properly get to his context and intent and whatnot. So
1: You're really reliant on good commentaries if you don't know the languages. So yep. you always have to check yourself, and maybe that's where you're going next. Like, what stage does the commentary come in? We
0: are going to get there. So I'm going I'm to cut you off. Go ahead. Mm. I don't want to get into that too soon. All right. But I will say, you, want, you don't need to m- master the languages. But I would say there are particular parts of speech that you really want to be aware of, obviously verbs, but then pronouns, especially because in English, you could be you singular, it could be you plural, and sometimes, especially in epistles written to churches, that's a fairly significant deal. Anyway, okay, so moving on from there, you've kind of, you've walked through your passage and I'm sure you guys have some form of outlining, We won't get into that. At what point do you start thinking about introduction, conclusion, illustrations? Where in the process (laughs) do you you write these things out or do you like I'm a I'm a jotter I like I like oh I I could start with that I put down a little idea maybe come back to it or I know people that perfectly manuscript their introductions and their conclusions like what do you do with that kind of
2: stuff
1: the intro and conclusion are like the last thing that I do see and I want to say
2: what was your question when do you write the intro and conclusion? it's
1: like the last thing see but
2: I catch myself often starting with it and I have to force myself not to because it's very natural to be like, oh, I could start it this way. But you don't know what the pastor's saying. So I'm with you. Like it has to be the last. But my I, it's like a developed skill not to do it till the end because it needs to build off of the main points.
1: And as you're working through a passage, you, you start applying it to yourself. The text begins to become alive. I mean, it's always alive, but it becomes alive to you. And as it becomes alive to you, you start to develop these thoughts of, wow, this is how I could connect it to the people. And then you're developing this introduction. But really what you need to do is you just got to step back and look at the text still and finish it all out. Maybe you're jot down some of those thoughts and ideas as you're applying it to yourself. So then you could share that as you're preaching. I don't personally do that, but it's a good, it'd be a good practice. I think that's what Andy was saying that he does do. Coming back to that intro and conclusion at the end is where, where you need to put it.
2: And I usually do jot down like you do, Charlie. My idea is if I don't, I have learned something about myself. I'm notoriously weak at coming up with illustrations on the fly. And so there are times where I got the sermon almost all the way ready, but I didn't have my introduction written out and I thought it was done. And we're almost to the church, like I'm doing pulpit supply (laughs) or something. And I'm going through it in the car and Robin's driving and I realize, oh, I don't know. So I'll I'll say, you know, hey, Robin, uh, this is where I'm going. I need an opener. You know, we're working on that. And the problem is there's a couple of times where I would get into the pulpit, look at my notes and realize, oh, I didn't, didn't write this down. And I would say that on the fly, that's not my strength. So if that's you, listener, it's always worth it to think of a good, clear illustration that you can plan out. So I think your, your method of jotting it down ahead of time, and, Charlie. is and
0: illustrations are probably an undersold part of the sermon oh, process. Yes. A good illustration yes. with good exegesis they could remember that for the rest of their life. And you could have great exegesis, no illustration, and it might, you know, it's going to really help them in that moment, mm-hmm. but they might not remember that down the road, which is mm-hmm. not necessarily a problem, but it's okay if you get up into a pulpit and it's not super flashy. Mm-hmm. Uh Good exegesis trumps, you know, Amen. good preaching skill every day of the yep. week. Amen. You need to be, you want them to remember the text. That's yes. the most important thing. But... You can certainly enhance your ministry in the pulpit by crafting good illustrations. And I, I'm, I almost think sometimes I take for granted that my illustrations are good. And <laughs> like, I, oh, yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> but, you know, by the nature of something making sense to me, it, it doesn't make sense to people who don't think like me. And so I had a professor in seminary who really made us think through Get, like He even wanted like case studies to, to like almost put a case study into the end of a sermon, like really make application come alive for them. And it takes a lot of work to do that because sometimes, and I'll, I'll just speak personally, sometimes I think I want people to be impressed with the way I thought through a passage. And I forget that the point is for them to learn and grow from the passage, not to remember what I said about it. And it really takes an investment of time to, to do that well with illustrations. But okay, now get to the point of, I would say the biggest problem that a student has, someone who's learning to preach, is an unnecessary dependence on commentary. Now, I'm not saying you don't need commentaries. You do. You absolutely do, especially depending on your threshold of languages. You you really want good commentaries that you can get textual language points from without having to, you know, if if you know you're not going to learn Greek and Hebrew, You want good commentaries that are going to help you intersect with some of that discussion in a helpful way. There's just no way around it. Like a very popular commentary, a very popular guy, Warren Wiersbe. I have many works from him. There's a problem. Once you read it, you cannot unsee it. Once you see his outline, just funny thing it's just never quite as good as your, or your outline's never quite as good as his outline. And so I'm t- I am try to be very careful about how I use commentaries because I know it's just too easy. You know, in the Christian world, plagiarism's maybe not a super sparkly word, but it <laughs> happens, okay? And oh. it's just all too easy to take someone's great illustration, someone's great outline, and just take it right with you. And so what do you guys do with that? How do you guard yourself from that? how you prepare.
2: I think, um, for me, I see two key roles commentaries play, and this is not how I used to view it. I used to just go right to the commentary and I didn't understand what was happening to me, but Charlie, you just nailed it. That's what was going on. I haven't done any study. I've hardly read and observed the passage and I read a commentary and then I go back and I, it's almost like I can't get to the passage at that point. Cause I'm, I'm thinking about everything in the commentary. As I sit back and look at the scope of commentaries out there, to me, it seems like they've got two key purposes. I'm forgetting one. I know what it is. I'll tell you what it is. But I think the two main ones are, number one, to give you background on the passage that you can't have. So there's a, there's a principle or there's a, a, an idea, an interpretation we use in inter to Bible Study called the uh, Interpretive Journey. It's from a book by Duval and Scott uh, on called Grasping, the, <clears throat> Grasping God's Word. And you think of it like you're in the Bible town and then there's a message given to someone in the Bible town, and you've got to get it over to your town, which is today's culture. But going between those two towns is a big river. We talked about this way back in the day, I think, on a podcast. But the point is that you have to get into that culture, worldview, setting to understand the meaning. So I think commentaries can give you background helps that are invaluable. I taught through James, the book of James, in Sunday school eight or nine years ago. And I was doing my THM, and I was really trying to ramp up my my effort and my abilities, and so I did a full Sunday school session on background from like four commentaries, and the whole series I felt was way more enlightening because we all had the necessary context, like there's this famine going on, uh, there's rich and poor, all the things in the book made more sense. Now, I think that was a good role of a commentary. it gave me background. The second one is to answer difficulties. so if there's a debated issue that you you're in English, you're trying to figure out what does this mean? that's when a commentary is there to help you. So I think those are the two things. I would say until you get to one of those needs, try to study the passage as much as you can on your own. Then definitely go to the commentaries, but try to do that part first. That's kind of what I try to do. And Languages is the one I'm leaving out. But
1: So uh, commentaries, I'd say the big purpose, especially what I recommend for the students, is to make sure you're not out in right field someplace. Uh, oh. Do the what exeg- so jumped
0: into my mind right that's away. That's really
1: good. Way to go, Tim. <laughs> two points. As you do your exegesis, you're trying to figure out, make observations. What is this text communicating? Um, My students in Exegesis 1 and Hebrew Exegesis 2 have to formulate sermons from the Hebrew text without the aid or without looking at a commentary. They bring a sermon to class without consulting a commentary, and then we discuss our our sermons, uh, propositional ideas, and so on and so forth. Then uh, in interacting, we see if we're all pretty close or if somebody's out in right field and then I tell them, okay, now go look at a commentary or three, I think. I require them to look at three or something like that. And um, often their assignments, when they submit the final draft, it comes back pretty much the same, which is a blessing. That means they're formulating a sermon from the text. Now they still learn some things, a little nugget here or there that they didn't know or missed or building off of somebody else's scholarship. There's a humility aspect there. If they're just exegeting the passage for themselves, and then just going and preaching it, that's arrogant. It's like, yes. I'm the only one that can figure it out, and I'm the only one that has the answers. It's sinful. You need to look at the commentary and uh, just make sure that you're not out in right field. So as far as commentaries are concerned, um, you are extremely reliant upon commentaries in the Old Testament without a knowledge of Hebrew. Uh, most uh, students don't realize how dependent they are, but time and time again, I, I as I work through the text, it's just like, People are just playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo with the different views as they're working <laughs> through some exegetical pal- passage. I describe that. It really and, and just, they pick something. So I'll leave it there.
0: On that note, someone who, if you, if you haven't learned Hebrew, I'll just challenge you, try to do some very intentional study when you read through the Psalms. It's not always represented very faithfully in English. Like it's, It is poetic in nature, and they're trying to translate some meaning at times. There are a lot of psalms that in English, you're like, oh, that's what that means. And if you look at it, you just peel one layer of saran wrap off the top of it to get a little clear look. You're like, oh, wait, okay, that word's not even there.
1: <laughs>
0: and it happens in all of the scriptures, but I feel like the psalms, it's so rich to be abused because... People they don't know Hebrew and they don't really interact with commentaries that interact with the languages. So
1: it's that way with all of the poetry in the Old yes. Testament.
0: And so I actually have an example of what you just said years ago. This probably be like probably seven years ago. I was, I think I was just finishing college. I was preaching through Galatians and I got to Galatians chapter six. And Galatians 6 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And I was trying to, like, okay, well, that's pretty straightforward. And so I was fully prepared to walk into church on Sunday and say, this is when a, a preacher has a great sermon and God works in your life and you want to share with them how that impacted you. <laughs> and and I was oh. like, that's a biblical thing. You need to share testimonies. And I, and I, I was like, okay, great. And then thankfully... I was recommended to buy this commentary and it's Shri- Thomas Schreiner. It's a Galatians commentary. That's it's a very great. good set. That's a good Commentary. Yeah, that's really and good. And I read, I, I jumped in and read and I was like, oh, wait, that word is actually used like in a sense of giving. So it's this idea of paying the pastor, supporting him, sharing mm. with him. He is teaching you, so share. And I'm just so thankful that I had a good commentary to make sure that I wasn't out in right field because, you know, Usually the people in the pews won't check what you say. There might have been a few that were like, "Nope, that's wrong." But I could have misled a whole group of people, and that would have been uh, horrendous, to use your word. Dr. Well, it's,
2: it's not very often that sheep uh, take the food you give it and then like give it a taste test and decide. You know, usually they're just hungry, so yeah, they probably just eat it and walk and, away with it and, and, and it's, be and none it's on a, the
0: wiser. It's a good principle too, because like you should share when God's yeah. working in your life. Just that's not out of that text. It's not necessarily what that text is <laughs> teaching. Yeah.
1: So one last uh, just preparation step. I know we're kind of going long here. The last step that I do is, is uh, I, I like this one book, The Valley of Vision. It's Puritan prayers, and it's very self-reflective. And before preaching, I like to pray one or two of those prayers and prepare my own heart. That's a very important aspect of the sermon development. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.6 states, The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. What does that mean? It means basically if you're going to be feeding somebody else, you need to eat it first. So um, that's a vital aspect of the sermon preparation work um, before delivery.
2: Last little tip for you. I would say that a lot of guys get up there and preach and they never listen to themselves. It, like, you, can, you can have your sermon recorded pretty easily. And I remember back in the days when I was a window cleaner and I'd preach somewhere And I would listen to that sermon three or four or five times the next day. Not out of vanity, just because I wanted to hear what it sounded like. And you learn a lot by listening to yourself. And it's embarrassing and it makes you cringe. But you need to cringe. It really helps you. The second thing, if you're married, your spouse is a huge resource. There's so many times we'd be leaving a church and I would ask my wife, how did that go? And she loves me and she's very gentle. But she will tell me, you know, you said this and that. Do you realize how that came off? And it has been invaluable for me to get feedback. And so, interesting. If you're, if you're out, yeah. Hey, I'm just saying. Interesting. That could be a good thing. Maybe source I should look into that. Go, go get a feedback I've never partner.
0: utilized that as a preaching tip. I've never used uh, a wife in my sermon. Mm,
2: well, you could. It, mainly because I don't have one. I would say that most guys <laughs> in HOM could just, you know, listen to what the teacher and fellow classmates oh, yeah, say, so, yeah, too. Yeah, you know, that, that too, would that work. Too. But I'm just saying, like, It's good. It's good to get feedback. It's wise. is what Proverbs says. Somebody
1: who loves you.
0: Someday. (laughs) And on that note, I hope that uh, this is helpful to you. We'll probably come back to this again. The idea that Tim, you closed on prayer in the Mm, life of a sermon and its preparation is probably something we don't talk about enough. So maybe we'll come back to that in a few episodes, but thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.